Yeah, so we opened April 20th, and it was a 24-hour event to really engage everyone um, and really get everybody excited about it. So we had something like 70,000 people um, coming to that event, and 40,000 people actually came through the museum. And so a lot of those came through and toured our lab. Um, and so there was a picture of me because I basically stayed up all night um, to work that event. Um, but it was really interesting because it was busy all night long, including um, after the bars closed when a lot of people said, hey, the bars closed. I don't want to go home yet. What do you want to do? Oh, let's go see the science museum. So um, that made for some fun fodder when we had um, intoxicated people coming to visit the lab. My name is Julie Horvath. I'm the director of the Genomics and Microbiology Lab at the Nature Research Center, which is the new wing of the North Carolina um, Museum of Natural Sciences in Raleigh, North Carolina. And um, I'm not only the director of this lab, but I also have a joint appointment in the biology department at North Carolina Central University, which is a near nearby university in Durham, North Carolina. Hello and welcome to the Grok Science Show. I'm Forrest Goulden. And I'm Joanna Rowell. That voice you heard belonged to Dr. Julie Horvath. Unless you only listen to the music, that is, in which case it was Michael Jackson from Rockwell's 1984 song, Somebody's Watching Me. Dr. Horvath changed her job, kept doing a lot of the same work, and ended up with a whole new look in to her laboratory. That's right, a whole new look in, not a whole new outlook. You'll find out what that means in just a few minutes. First, though, let's hear a little bit about where Dr. Horvath used to work and what she used to do. Uh, I was uh, the research director of this Primate Genomics Initiative. Duke has um, this wonderful uh, lemur center, which has more than 200 different animals, um, mostly lemurs, but they have some related lorises and galagos. And um, it's run as a, mainly a research facility, so um, there are a lot of different groups of these animals, so um, somewhere around 15 different species um, of lemurs, lorises, and galagos. And researchers go and study their behavior. Some people actually collect um, DNA through blood um, or cheek swabs. Um, and a lot of people do, you know, a lot of researchers at Duke as well as elsewhere actually use this facility. We realized that Duke and a lot of other places have really strong connections with primate research um, and, you know, in basic behavioral sciences, neurobiology, um, lots of different disciplines. But there was this missing link where we weren't connecting it back to um, DNA sequence or genotype very often. And so we wanted to um, create an initiative that would actually bring researchers together who worked on behavior or cognition or neuroscience with researchers who worked on genomics and genetics. 
you know, it gave people an idea or a sense of more of a community that this was actually something that multiple people were interested in. So while it certainly helped some of my work, it also built up more of a community of researchers interested in this type of thing. Um, and it really, you know, generated more interest in, in the whole initiative um, itself, as well as, you know, getting more graduate students and postdocs interested, as well as the, the main researchers. Um, so I think it actually helped many people's research. And a lot of my collaborations I still have ongoing that stemmed from this Primate Genomics Initiative. So Dr. Horvath was a director of the Primate Genomics Initiative, an initiative designed to facilitate collaborations between different groups of primate researchers. That's right, to help people who wanted to work with lemurs get access to lemur DNA and to get people working on genotypes together with people working on phenotypes. Dr. Horvath also mentioned that she is maintaining collaborations for her own work, work she is bringing with her to her new job. Let's hear about some of those projects. So I do a lot of comparative genomics, which means that I'm comparing pairing DNA sequences um, between multiple different primate species. And so one of those projects is actually comparing the genes involved in dental enamel formation um, because different primate species have thin versus thick enamel based on some of um, the things that they eat in their diet. And so we're using the primates to understand which genes are controlling thick versus thin enamel, and we can then apply that to humans to sort of understand human health and disease aspects um, because humans have some dental formation, um, enamel formation problems, and so we can now target some of the same genes that we've identified using primates. Another project Dr. Horvath is continuing in her new job is some work on torpor in gray mouse lemurs. She talked to us about these animals and her project. Gray mouse lemurs, um, which are the species that they have at the Duke Lemur Center, there are somewhere around, um, you know, more than 15 different species of mouse lemurs. Um, but the gray mouse lemur in particular is the one housed at Duke. They're actually pretty small, so um, some of the mouse lemurs are very, very tiny. They're smaller than a house mouse, um, but I guess you could say they sort of look like little house mouse. Um, they're cute. They have little um, fuzzy cheeks, little ears like you would imagine, a little button nose, um, and uh, a sort of skinny tail, um, and so you can hold them in your hand. They're, they're about the size of your hand, um, and as I mentioned, there are multiple different species, and so some are a lot smaller than a house mouse, and some get a little bit bigger than a house mouse, so they range in size depending on what your species is, um, and some of the different species actually have different characteristics, um, different coat colors, so some are brown, some are a little more reddish, um, some are blonde, so it sort of depends on the species is exactly what they look like, but um, all cute and fuzzy little critters. These species undergo this process called torpor, which is similar to hibernation. <clears throat> and some of the mouse lemurs can torpor for, <clears throat> excuse me, for um, days to um, weeks. And um, some of the related species of fat-tailed dwarf lemur actually can torpor for um, many months. And so this process is really intriguing because a lot of different mammals can um, undergo this process, torpor, also um, very similar to hibernation, as I mentioned. And so when this um, animals are undergoing torpor or hibernation, they're actually lowering their overall body metabolism, reducing their oxygen consumption. And we know that this process is actually conserved across many mammals. So it's likely that a lot of the same genes are important for all of these mammal species, and therefore likely that humans have a lot of these same genes. So if we can understand which genes are important for this and how this is regulated, say, in the mouse lemur that knows how to regulate its 
enhanced body metabolism, this could be actually really useful for humans um, to study diseases such as diabetes and obesity, which are problems with human metabolic regulation. But it's also really being used to apply things um, like um, organ transplantation, because if you could figure out how to let organs use less oxygen, um, that would certainly increase the time when you could um, have tissues useful for organ transplantation. Um, and it's also been thought of as a, a great way to study astronauts um, and people going into space. If we could learn a way to reduce the energy demands of people in space, that would actually really help with um, a lot of our space missions. Okay, so now we have an idea about Dr. Horvath's research. And we've teased a few times about Dr. Horvath's job. Now let's hear Dr. Horvath describe her new job and what is so unique about it. Well, the only, I guess the most unique thing about my lab is that it's all glass enclosed. All of the walls are basically just glass. Um, and the idea being that the public, um, because my lab is in this museum setting, so the idea is that the public can now look in and view science in action and see what it looks like to be a scientist. And so um, myself, my assistant director, and all of the interns and volunteers that we have working are working behind this glass-enclosed room. And so you can actually view in from multiple different locations. And so people can see what we're doing. We sometimes actually come outside and talk about what we're doing. And so the idea is you can see all of the instruments. We have really low-lying benches. Um, so we have normal lab-sized benches, but then not a lot of shelf space above. So you can actually get a good sight line all the way through the lab. And so along the outer edges, you'll see some of the fridges and freezers and some storage space. Um, but then inside the main lab, it looks like a standard molecular biology lab. We have PCR machines, um, hoods for containing different chemicals and to maintain a clean space when we're setting up some of our experiments, um, the basic types of um, computers and centrifuges. We have a DNA sequencer up front close to the window so people can actually see what that looks like um, and watch us set some of these equipment pieces up with um, our experiments. So Dr. Horvath's entire lab is visible to the public. Every time someone pulls a flask off a shelf, every time someone pulls up a reference on PubMed, or every time someone goes on Facebook, someone outside the lab is watching. I doubt Facebook gets accessed too much from the lab. But things like that, things you might normally do without even thinking about, don't those behaviors change when you know you're being watched? How do you cope with having an audience for everything you do? Um, it's funny. So, you know, everyone asks us about this fishbowl effect. Do you feel like you're in a fishbowl and you're always um, being observed? And we quickly got used to it, I guess. Um, so we do our lab work like normal. I guess, you know, you get absorbed in what you're interested in. And so you kind of tune out that there are people right outside the glass watching what you're doing. Um, but we have um, thousands of visitors daily. So um, there are a lot of people walking by the windows. And I guess it would be somewhat distracting if you always looked, you know, and realized that they were there. Um, so the only thing that gets me is that since I study primates and have this dental enamel project, um, I have some primate skulls right on display outside my lab um, to really engage people in, hey, I study primate DNA, but I'm also looking at some characteristics that are important for tooth formation. Um, so I have all these primate skulls right at the edge of my window, and a lot of people come by and take pictures of the skulls. So we're constantly seeing flashes, and so at first that would make me think that I had a fire alarm or fire drill going off or something. Um, but now I sort of have tuned that out too. So um, it's actually, it's been really fun. Um, sometimes I'll see kids really 
who look really engaged in the skulls. And so I can come outside of my lab and I can talk to them about it and ask what their interests are and really talk to them about, you know, why science is fun and talk to them about some of the interesting um, things they can study with primates and why I'm interested in primates. And so I think we can really engage more people that way because we can just see who's interested and who wants to stick around for a while and then come out and talk to them on a daily basis. She makes it sound easy and natural, but I don't know if I could get used to having an audience for my work. Yeah, and I don't think that's even the hardest part about Dr. Horvath's new, new lab. It's one thing to let people watch you do science. It's another thing entirely to explain to them what they're watching. We're kind of working on that still. So sometimes they do, and sometimes I can come out of my lab and I can actually explain what people are doing at different stations. So we sort of have stations set up, and right now just have um, signs sort of indicating what the stations are. Um, but the unique thing about this is that I have a research lab. So there are four main research labs in the museum. Um, and I, the genomics and microbiology lab is just one of the main research labs. But all of the research labs have affiliated investigate labs, which is a place where a lot of the same types of things are ongoing, but the public is meant to go into the investigate lab rooms. And so there are coordinators in those rooms where um, they'll direct people to set experiments up. They'll talk about what some of the experiments are. So for example, um, we pipette in my lab, which means we're um, moving around really, really tiny amounts of liquids with um, this special instrument called a pipette. Um, and you can go into the investigate lab that's affiliated with my lab, which is just around the corner from my lab. And you can go in as a, a visitor or a student and you can learn to pipette and learn what these different amounts are and how to use them. And then they talk about how you can apply that to, say, setting up something like a PCR, which is basically amplifying a small piece of DNA. Our goal is really to engage the general public, um, teach them a little bit about science, tell them why, they, why it's important to them, why they should care, but also to educate the next generation of scientists because this area of um, Raleigh, North Carolina, Duke, um, and Durham area have you know, these, these great facilities, wonderful um, resources with biotech companies and different universities, but we're not training a lot of our young scientists to become scientists. And so the idea of the Nature Research Center is not only to engage the general public, but also to engage young scientists to show them science is this wonderful career and anyone can actually do science. And so that's one of the ideas of these investigate labs is, you know, anybody can come and pipette, anybody can learn to set up a PCR. So it, it might look hard, it might look really complicated, but you can do it. Dr. Horvath talked about the iLabs, where visitors to the museum can get hands-on experience with some of the tools of science and see, from a first-person perspective, what scientists actually do. It's a great way to get people involved in science. And it isn't the only way the Nature Research Center, or even the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences, tries to get non-professional scientists involved. No, it's not. Uh, one phrase that shows up again and again on the Nature Research Center's website is the phrase, citizen scientist. So that's a really big component of the Nature Research Center, and it was a component that was built into the main museum originally, but um, it has really flourished now that we have um, the Nature Research Center. So there are all these different projects where um, each of the main labs at least has one or two projects ongoing, um, but then there's an affiliated Prairie Ridge Ecostation, which is also um, part of the museum wing, um, and that's about 10 miles away. And so they have a lot of citizen science projects because they have, you know, a large natural area where people can come out and do some of these experiments. And so one of the research experiments in my lab that we think is really cool is a collaboration with Rob Dunn, who's at a local university, NC State. Um, and he was actually, he studies the wildlife of 
your home, your body, basically the microbes that live around you, recognizing that, you know, there are microbes all throughout our world, and we can now start learning about them. And now that we have some of these new technologies like next-generation sequencing, we can actually use these technologies to understand what's living around us and see how that impacts our daily lives. And so he started this project um, looking at the wildlife in your home, which was basically the microbes that live in different places in your home. He expanded that to humans, so he started looking at human belly buttons to see, hey, what lives in people's belly buttons. Um, and so we've now expanded that to look at people's armpits. So it sounds a little bit gross, but um, armpit biodiversity projects is actually a big hit. So everybody seems a little bit grossed out, but everyone's really intrigued by it. So we actually have volunteers in the lab starting to work on this. And so we're taking basically cotton swabs, just swab under people's armpit, collect the bacteria that are living there, and then either grow them up on plates or um, submit them right away and sequence a little piece of each bacterial genome so we can figure out which species it is based on its DNA sequence. And um, one of the reasons we wanted to start this armpit project is because I have this big presence of primates. And so we're starting with humans, but we want to expand to different primates to see how has um, evolutionary changes actually shaped the different microbes that live on us, among us, um, and on different primate species. You know, Dr. Horvath said that everyone finds the armpit idea kind of gross. I think it's kind of awesome. Yeah, I imagine it's a hit with kids. The Museum of Natural Sciences, usually through the Nature Research Center, has citizen science projects at the Prairie Ridge Eco Station. They have the bird count, a box turtle watch, even the great chicken coop stakeout. Which sounds awesome. An attempt to survey the carnivores of urban and rural areas and determine which predators are attracted to backyard chicken coops. It does sound awesome. But citizen scientists aren't just scattered across North Carolina. They're also in the lab. A lot of the interns and volunteers come from local area universities. Um, one student just graduated in, uh, from a university in Georgia, and she's now going to vet school at NC State. Um, we have several students who are at NC State who are getting um, research credit for working here over the summer. Um, I didn't mention before, but I have a joint appointment with North Carolina Central University in Durham. So I'm appointed in the biology department there, and there's an undergrad who's actually worked working um, this summer as an intern in the museum. And so a lot of the universities that are local um, are feeding into a lot of the, the people who want to work here, but we also have a lot of high school students really interested in this, and that's sort of the level we're targeting is really trying to get high school and undergraduate students engaged in science. We have great wealth of interest in doing volunteer work here. Um, I actually have a retired biochemist who's working in the lab as well. So he um, was a biochemist for a couple decades of his life and realized, hey, genomics is kind of where it's at now. So I want to go back and learn about genomics. So he's volunteering this summer as well. So it's really quite a diverse group of um, people in the lab. And it really makes a, a really fun lab, a good environment, because you have you know all levels, all ages, um, all different experiences. So been a really good experience for me as well. So far, we have a complete genomics and molecular biology lab. That lab is in the middle of a museum. It's totally enclosed by glass, so everyone can see what the people working in the lab are doing, and it employs a large and disparate group of volunteers. But there's one big part of the story, a big part of any story about any lab that we haven't touched on yet. We haven't talked yet about who pays for all of this. So a lot of this was state-funded, so the state really put up about $54 million to build this building, um, and it's part of this Green Square Complex, which is an energy-efficient um, office space and part of the museum. So the museum is 80,000 square feet, 
um, this new wing, but um, there are also a lot of office spaces that are part of the Department of Environment and Natural Resources that is really makes up this whole Green Square complex. So the state funded the main part of this. Um, we also have um, contributors such as GlaxoSmithKline gave a million dollars, and now their name is you know sponsoring um, my lab, and so their name is on my door. Um, and we have the State Employees Credit Union gave about four million dollars, and they actually funded um, and have their name on this Daily Planet Theater, which is this three-story, wonderful immersive theater that's high-definition, multimedia, um, and it's a place where we come down and give talks about our scientific work. Um, but we also have visiting scientists come and talk there. And this is a, um, the theater can actually link to all of the schools in North Carolina. It can link nationally and internationally. So this is a great way to get the message out and to actually connect with not only schools in North Carolina that are local, but um, all over the state and all over the world. So Dr. Horvath said that both the state and several other businesses or organizations provided significant amounts of seed money to build the Nature Research Center and equip the labs in that center with high-tech tools. However, she didn't say anything about keeping the lab running, only about setting the lab up. I noticed that too while we were talking with Dr. Horvath, and I even started to make a joke about having an audience watching her write a grant. But it turns out it's not a joke. Visitors to the Nature Research Center really can watch Dr. Horvath write a grant. They certainly see me writing grants. So um, I'm in my office a lot, but my door is all glass, and then above my door is all glass. So there's just a tiny corner where I um, am not visible to viewers. So really people can see what we're doing basically all the time. Because, you know, you have to realize that part of doing science is writing grants and writing papers. And so that's part of what we're doing. And so people can see that. I have to say, I thought it was kind of crazy to have a setup where you can watch someone write a grant. (laughs) It seems like this really boring thing that no one would possibly want to watch. Yeah, absolutely. But the more I thought about it, the more I really, really like the idea. After all, if you want to show people what scientists do for a living, you have to show them what they actually do. Right, and writing grants is a huge part of what scientists do. We asked Dr. Horvath if the museum tried to teach the viewing public about the necessity for grants in research. Um, We certainly do. Um, That sort of is part of some of our presentations, um, but we're still sort of working on that and getting people to understand where some of this comes from. It's interesting when we have our volunteers working on some of these projects and you explain how much money some of these things cost, they have a different perspective and realize, oh my gosh, you know, this is something that is really expensive and took a lot of time and money to obtain, so I shouldn't waste it. I should really be um, mindful of it. Um, And so some of our students are helping us collect data for grants, and so they're realizing now that this is a larger process and, and so you know, sort of see how this all works. You know, all of this is bringing to my mind a book, uh, Free Radicals, written by author and sometimes physicist Michael Brooks. Dr. Brooks talks a little about ClimateGate. ClimateGate being the hacking and release of thousands of documents, including personal communication related to research on global climate change? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The hack (laughs) and subsequent release of the documents collected was meant to discredit the idea of anthropogenic climate change. And on the surface, some of the documents released look a little shady. For instance, in one notorious email, Dr. Phil Jones talks about using a trick to hide a decline in temperatures. I remember that email, and I remember that the trick was actually not shady, was described previously in an article from the journal Nature, 
and wasn't really even a trick, just a trick of the trade. Right, trick of the trade. That's exactly what Dr. Jones called it afterwards. But trick was reported all over the news again and again and again without the context you just gave us. But you know what the most amazing thing about all this is? I have a feeling I'm about to find out. You are. The amazing thing is, if you survey people who decided about anthropogenic global climate change one way or the other as a result of the leaked documents, more people decide to believe in global climate change than disbelieve. Some of the commentary on of this from Free Radicals, the Michael Brooks book, is that scientists have taken enormous pains to be perceived as dispassionate and objective, and unfortunately, people have trouble relating to and believing anyone who claims to be totally dispassionate and objective. That makes sense. And uh, when the Climate Gate documents were released, people could see that Dr. Jones, Dr. Michael Mann from Penn State University, and others were not science bots but real-life people. Yeah, and seeing that they were normal human beings made it easier for people to relate to them and believe in what they were saying. We asked Dr. Horvath if she thought this was a good argument. Yeah, I definitely think so, and I think that's part of what goes into the Nature Research Center because you're actually engaging the scientists and you learn, hey, you know, you're a real person too, you like some of the same things I do, and so um, you're not just this nebulous person who um, is way above me in any way. Um, you, you're a normal person, and I could become... a you know, a scientist as well. One of my favorite things about that idea, that scientists can make themselves appear more trustworthy by being more open, is that it has consequences all over the scientific map. For instance, do you remember Duke's Primate Center that Dr. Horvath talked about earlier? Mm-hmm. It's this large facility with hundreds of primates and tons of researchers. It has to be under really heavy security, right? No, actually Duke is great in that sense. So they give tours um, on a daily basis. Um, Monday through Saturday they often have tours and they're running all throughout the day. And so, you know, they're letting you see the animals and also see what some of the, the research is that's being conducted there. It's kind of crazy to think that I have to swipe my ID three times just to get close to our animal facilities here at the University of Chicago. But at Duke I could just drive up to a lemur facility and take a tour. Full disclosure? That question was a setup. I actually took the tour a few years ago. Oh, I'm jealous. You should be. It was an amazing facility. And it's not like the primate facility at Duke is an outlier either. There are other similar examples, one of which is right at the Nature Research Center. Part of our vet center actually has um, a research area as well, which I guess you could also call another lab. Um, And so they actually have procedures that they do, and the public can come and view those on a daily basis also. So you're really getting up close and personal, and you realize, well, you know, maybe you have to restrain some of these animals because it's a poisonous snake, and you don't want it to bite the vet because the vet's trying to treat it. So I think people are actually starting to get a better perspective of how people and animals um, can work together to understand and learn about science. I'm hoping that through those kinds of things, we'll actually start understanding that some of the research that's done on primates, um, actually a lot of my research isn't done on them because I'm just collecting samples that are somewhat non-invasive. So if I get a cheek swab to collect DNA, that's not actually hurting the animal in any way. And I can actually collect cheek swabs from people and they see that it doesn't really hurt at all. So I think that's a good way um, to connect and realize that not all primates are used in this, you know, inhumane research. And so I hope people understand that, that most primates are actually used for the greater good. And um, they actually are housed in good areas and have good lives, too. When I was younger and living on the East Coast, I loved going to the Smithsonian Museums. The Museum of Natural History and the Air and Space Museum were my favorites. But I have to be honest, I don't remember having the opportunity to watch scientists do research. Yeah, I don't remember a lot of that from my childhood, but the more I look around now, the more I see examples just like those Dr. Horvath described. For example, the Field Museum in Chicago has a viewable fossil preparation laboratory. Yeah, I dig that. I see what you did there. Yeah? 
Yeah, it wasn't very good. Yeah. Um, Dr. Horvath also talked to us about the philosophy that is leading to the presence of labs in museums like hers. Although we are a museum and we strive to teach people what we know um, through exhibits and through some of our interactive displays, um, we also are interested in teaching people how we know what we know because I think that's a really big um, connection for people to recognize, you know, um, science takes a long time to learn things and so if they see how experiments form and how we actually learn things and understand how we know these different facts. That's actually much more validating for them to understand why we know what we know by um, how we know what we know. The last thing we talked to Dr. Horvath about was the game we play here on the Grok Science Show, the Grokatron 5000. Woo-hoo. Dr. Horvath was happy to answer a few <laughs> questions for us. So many species of animals hibernate during times of scarcity. That includes gray mouse lemurs, one of the species Dr. Harvath works with. For the Grokatron 5000, we asked Dr. Harvath which of the following celebrities she thinks needs to take a nap. The first celebrity we asked her about was golfer Tiger Woods. Uh, you know, he probably could use a nap to relax from all of his hard work because he's actually been doing pretty good lately. So, um, yeah, I would say I, I, he, he could use a nap, definitely. Okay. Up next was actor Charlie Sheen. Uh, I just heard about him on the radio on my way here. Um, He could probably use a long nap. I think think he's coming back on TV, but I think um, he maybe needs to tone it down for a little while. So he he needs a nap from some of his hard work um, and to get himself back in check. After Charlie Sheen, reality show star Kim Kardashian. Oh, no, I don't think she needs a nap. I think she needs to be right out there because she's actually really good entertainment. So she needs to stay up and and awake and alive so we can all uh, have a good laugh every day. The next celebrity has a North Carolina connection. Former basketball star and current owner of the Charlotte Bobcats, Michael Jordan. <laughs> uh, no, I don't think he need, he doesn't have time for a nap. He's got too much going on. So we need him uh, front and center and, and out there. So no nap for him either. And finally, primatologist Jane Goodall. Oh, gosh. She needs a lot of naps. Um, I just met her earlier this year, and she is a phenomenal woman. Um, but she doesn't sound like she ever rests. So I think she needs a nap back on um, her favorite perch in um, Tanzania in the Gombe National Forest. So I think she, she could use a lot of rest for all of her hard work. Well, that's almost we have for our interview with Dr. Julie Harvath. That's right, almost all we have. We'll hear a little bonus content playing over the song that's going to take us out. If you want to hear more about Dr. Horvath's work, you can see her at the Nature Research Center of the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. And if you want to hear more from us here at the Grok Science Show, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and our own webpage. We're also on the Public Radio Exchange, the Internet Archive, and of course, like everyone else, iTunes. In fact, at all of those venues, you'll find a catalog of more than 300 episodes of the Grok Science Show. Some of the archives go all the way back to the start of the Grok Science Show about 600 interviews ago. That's right. It's really kind of incredible. It's also, unfortunately, time for Joanna and I to say goodbye for this week. For the Grok Science Show and for Elise Kovic, Frank Ling, Charles Lee, and Joanna Rao, I'm Forrest Gordon. The National Science Museum has been around since um, about 1879, and it started out as a really small museum with some researchers, and it actually expanded. So a little over 10 years ago, Betsy Bennett, who's now the director of the main museum, um, really built this new building to highlight some of the research ongoing. So my lab is the Genomics and Microbiology Lab, where I'm the director, and all of the, the research labs have a director and an assistant director. And um, my assistant director is Jewel Urban. 
Um, the second lab is the Biodiversity and Earth, Earth Observation Lab, and the director of that is Roland Keynes, and Michelle Trotwein will be the director. Um, one of the other labs is the Geoscience and Paleontology Lab, where Dr. Lindsay Zano is the director, and Paul Brinkman is the assistant director. And then our fourth lab um, is the Space Observation and Astronomy Lab, where Rachel Smith is the director, and Jay Marin is the assistant director. 